Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 541 of the Juicebox podcast. For this episode, I would like to give credit where credit is due. Steven is a listener who sent me an email, and at the very end of it, it said, Hey, I have a guest suggestion for you. You should have Dr. Saliadi on. I did a little research and I found out that the good doctor is a pediatric endocrinologist who is also the co-founder of Tidepool and their chief medical advisor. So I was like, all right, this sounds like a good idea. But what happened next was nothing short of absolutely inspiring. This conversation is one of my favorites that I've ever had about the management of diabetes, and I hope you enjoy it. Please remember while you're listening that nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before you make any changes to your healthcare plan or become bold with insulin. This conversation is going to break right down the middle almost. The first half, we're going to talk a lot about algorithms and the future of them with type 1 diabetes. And in the second half, we're going to talk about basal insulin and ideas around management. Just listen to the whole thing. It's a master's class. This show is sponsored today by the glucagon that my daughter carries, Gvoke Hypopen. Find out more at gvokeglucagon.com forward slash juicebox. The episode is also sponsored by the Dexcom G6 Continuous Glucose Monitor. You can get started or find out more at dexcom.com forward slash juicebox. There are links to all the advertisers in the show notes of your podcast player or at juiceboxpodcast.com. My name is Saleh Adi, and I am a pediatric endocrinologist. I spent uh, most of my career taking care of children with diabetes until very recently, a couple of years ago, when I uh, decided it was time for me to retire. And I left my position at UCSF, and I uh, have been just hanging out, having fun, and uh, volunteering to a number of organizations uh, that I've always done before, uh, mostly related to diabetes in children. And uh, here I am. Uh, so I'm happy to be involved and continue to be in the community, this lovely, wonderful community to be part of. That's excellent. How long did you practice? Uh, I graduated from uh, UCSF uh, program back in 1997. So that's really when I finished training. Uh, and uh, first, uh, I was mostly in the lab doing basic science research uh, until about 2003, that's when I returned to San Francisco and focused uh, my career, uh, refocused my career on clinical work uh, with children with diabetes, uh, and I left the basic science for that world. What what made you what made you switch? Um, I had to make a decision. It's either basic science research or clinical work, and I couldn't do both at the same time. I loved my. Uh, basic science research area. Uh, it was it was wonderful. It was a lot of fun. It was. I thought that this was something that I wanted to do for a living. Uh, but I always miss seeing patients uh, and uh, taking care of patients and interacting with human beings. And uh, I realized after trying for a few years that it's really impossible to do both at the same time. Hmm. You kind of have to choose either one hundred twenty percent research or one hundred twenty percent clinical. Otherwise, you can't really get it done. 
doing 50% here, 50% there, or a combination. And uh, I had to make a decision, and I gave up my lab and uh, decided to be a clinician. Wow. Well, there's at least one person who's really glad that you did, and it's a person who wrote to me and said, you have to have Salih on the on the program just to talk about basal insulin. And I was like, really? <laughs> Very was, specifically. It was such a specific email. Uh, so uh, so I said, be, and I, I went back and forth with the person. They said, I'm telling you, just have him on. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'm going to believe you. Now, you're involved with Tidepool still. Is that right? Correct. Correct. Okay. Uh, I'm still on the board of Tidepool and, and the chief medical advisor. Uh, and I know just about everyone who works at Tight Pool, and uh, it's been uh, it's been a lovely and fun journey since we established Tight Pool. Um, I don't know, seven eight years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, well, you know what? Maybe I'll I'll dig into it like this. Maybe. Do you remember the moment when Tide Pool said we're going to try to bring an algorithm to market through the FDA? Uh, yes, yes, I remember that very vividly. Uh, it was a board meeting when we discussed it for the very first time, and uh, everyone was so excited about the idea, such a novel idea, and uh, it was very timely. Uh, you know, the, the Loop uh, project uh, has been around as a DIY Loop. People, you know, download the software and put the hardware together and, and make it work. Uh, and it had been for such a long time so controversial. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? It, it, it works clearly works for the patients, but how do we make it official? Uh, how do we make it uh, safe? Uh, and how do we get the stamp of approval from the authorities? Uh, I think there was at that time it was highly controversial, uh, and the FDA was sort of like. We really like this thing, but we can't allow it to just continue to go on like this. It's so non-official. And in, in, in the hands of people who don't know what they're doing, it can be um, not so safe. I don't want to say dangerous because it's probably okay. Uh, but uh, the FDA eventually sort of decided to, well, let's take a different route. Uh, and I think in combination between the FDA and JDRF and the Helmsley Charitable Trust, uh, they decided that, well, DIY Loop is a nonprofit open source project for the good of the community. Uh, Tidepool is a nonprofit open source project for the good of the community. That sounds like maybe we could do something together. And they basically approached Tidepool and said, would you work on this project mm-hmm. to make it more formal and get the official approval? Uh, and do all the things that we need to do to make sure that it's safe and efficient and, fi- and effective uh, and get it done with an FDA approval. Uh, and it was like an aha moment. It's like, oh, of course, this is what we do. So let's pivot and change direction and make sure that we're going to be able to do this right. Yeah. And that was the moment when it all started. I have a question, and this I hope it doesn't sound like I'm I don't even know the word here, how it's, I don't mean it if it sounds a bit poor. I just don't understand this one aspect of it. How do you take something that's floating around on the internet and take it and say, we're going to package this up and move it through the FDA? Like, I guess the, the question is, why is that okay? It's just because it's, it's open source. Is that the idea? Well, because it's open source, that means it's available for anyone to take it. We don't have to pay for it. Mm -hmm. 
our task at Tidepool was to actually look at it, uh, look at the software itself and make sure that there are no bugs in it. Uh, make sure that it's rigorously tested, both technically as well as clinically. Mm -hmm. Now, doing it clinically is a monumental task, like the traditional route would be, well, let's take the software and let's go and design a randomized controlled trial where patients can get enrolled in the project and get this DIY loop software or patients and others randomly chosen to not get the software or that they would get another different software and do the comparisons, you know, do the study, obviously, uh, collecting all of the data and then do the comparisons, looking at the data back and see, uh, was this safe? Was it as safe as the other projects out there, the other closed-loop systems? Uh, was it as effective as other closed-loop systems or was it better or was it worse? Uh, and, and doing it in a, in a randomized control tire in a very efficient, in, in a very uh, official way, that would have taken a long, long time. And the, uh, the, the way we have chosen to do it at Tightpool is there are a lot of people who are using it unofficially out there on their own. So why don't, and, and they've been using it for years. So we have a ton of data collected on them already. Mm -hmm. It's just not done in a randomized controlled manner, but there's a lot of data out there that has been generated for years in real people living their real life. So why don't we just go and look at their data if we can and enroll them in the study and continue to look at their data moving forward for those who are going to start on the system uh, and then see what we get. Uh, we know how to look at data. We know how to collect data. Uh, and see whether there's any evidence of uh, uh, that, that the system is unsafe or if there's any evidence that uh, it's harmful or if there's any evidence that it's actually really good and we can show the data. And that's kind of where it all started. And we collected the data, the observational study, uh, and uh, we crunched all the numbers. And uh, I shouldn't say we, I think Tightpool, I, I really don't take much credit for it. They've done that. Uh, tremendous uh, job and submitted it to the FDA and, and see if the FDA will be happy with all with this sort of non-traditional pathway of looking at the safety of a project of a product um, uh, and, if they, and if it's acceptable enough to demonstrate safety and efficacy because at the end of the day that's what the FDA wants to see right. is that is it safe that if we give it to the people to whom it was intended for, uh, that it's going to be safe if they use it the way it is right now? And is it effective? Uh, does it really do what people claim it does when we are clearly looking at data not based on just anecdotal experiences? I see. Uh, and we'll wait to see what the FDA thinks about it. It's an amazing idea to just say to them, look, I know this is usually how it goes, but we have all this data why don't you let us look at it and send it to you and see if you can't be okay with it? And exactly. it really is a, a, a fascinatingly simple, you know, you just don't hear too many people approach things in a common sense way usually. So it's uh, exciting to hear someone look at something and say, here's, here's the common sense of this here. Why don't we do this? I'll, I'll have to tell you that my daughter's 17. She's been using loop for maybe a year and a half or two years now. 
And I mean, she was doing incredibly well prior. Uh, my daughter's A1C has been between 5'2 and 6'2 for like eight years. But mm. the amount of sleep that we got back exactly with Loop just at all, and we're using an autobolus branch. So um, it's, uh, it's really wonderful. I mean, it, it, it's, I haven't seen all of them, obviously, and Omnipod 5 is not out yet, but this is the best one I've seen so far, is, is, is this exact thing that we're using right now. Also, the idea that you, that you kind of came to an agreement with Omnipod, I mean, the, the idea that one day Omnipod 5 can either run its algorithm or yours is brilliant as well in offering choice to people. Um, I just think there's a lot of open-mindedness going on that that I like seeing. I, I like that term. I think the open-mindedness, uh, which would be, if we were to coin an official uh, term, would be interoperability, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was something that Tightpool, you know, and I give the credit to Howard and, and Brandon, the leaders in, in Tightpool, of... Um, of adopting that concept from the very beginning, from the very early days. It's just like we have to open up the, the, the space of diabetes and, and get rid of all these silos of every company using only their devices and their software. Uh, it has to be open so that people can have a choice. Which pump do they want to use? Which CGM do they want to use? Which software do they want to use? Yeah. Uh, and put and and put a combinations together. You don't have to buy all of your kitchen equipment from a single manufacturer with a single brand. You like this oven, you like that refrigerator and that freezer, etc. You can put it together and it can work together. Uh, and, and this is the same concept. Uh, and uh, and you know, I'll give the credit to the FDA uh, who really was saying. We love the idea as well, and we want to encourage that. Uh, so now it's become a very common thing to ask for, just like when you, uh, as a manufacturer, when you create a product, how interoperable it is. Uh, and it's desirable to be very interoperable and open to other uh, companies and other softwares to work with. Uh, and that also was something that JDRF pushed for very, uh, very strongly as Excellent. well. Yeah, I, I think that if you're not, if you're not paying attention, you might think of it as, oh, I enjoy this pump over this pump, and that's what makes this my choice. But you have to see that moving forward, you're going to want to choose between algorithms. Like this, the hardware is one thing, but the operating system, you're going to want some impact on too. So imagine if you really loved Medtronic's operating system, but you wanted to wear an Omnipod or, you know, I mean, I realize it's probably not going to work like that between companies, but this is that idea. Like you get an Omnipod because you like it. You get Omnipod 5 and you say, yeah, I really want to try Tidepool. And you can. Like, I mean, open-mindedness from the FDA, from Tidepool, I think Omnipod too, being a privately held company saying, yeah, well, let's do this. Like I, that's, there's a lot of exciting things in here. And I think people with diabetes are going to recognize in the next handful of years and beyond that the algorithms are going to be as valuable as anything else. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and the algorithm really is the biggest difference. I think that the, the mechanics of the, the hardware are more or less uh, uh, for the comfort uh, and the, uh, um, and, and what, what's, uh, it's, it's like, you know, what I'm comfortable with. Uh, and, and it's the, it's the human factor of the hardware that attracts certain populations, certain people. Uh, but also, 
The software, I think it's even more important because software algorithms with all of these closed loop systems are different from each other. They are different enough that in my opinion, my humble opinion, that um, that a certain software algorithm isn't going to work for every patient with type 1 diabetes. Uh, it depends on how much insulin they take. It depends on how, uh, how much beta cell function they have. It depends on how old they are. It depends on their lifestyle. It depends if they're... A t- I think that an algorithm that's going to work really well for a young adult who eats three times a day, very distinct meals, uh, is not may or may not work for a teenager who eats 16 times a day and eat five gram snack here and 12 gram snack there and 128 grams, mm. you know, breakfast. Uh, it may or may not work. But and the same thing if it works for that teenager uh, who has completely unscheduled bursts of activities and food and behavior uh, may also not be the best algorithm for a two-year-old infant who has type 1 diabetes. That's a whole different animal of dealing with type 1 diabetes in a toddler versus an infant versus a young child versus an adolescent versus a young adult uh, versus even an an older person who's like 60, 70, 80-year-old with type 1 diabetes. Those are very different people, and we really have to approach them differently. And I think we have to keep that in mind, is that not all algorithms for closed-loop systems are going to work for every single person with diabetes. Uh, Some of them will work better for others. They may work fine and be safe, but I think they may be more effective for different populations of people with diabetes. I found that there's a learning curve to... I'm going to use the wrong word here because I don't mean it to sound like this, but you have to sort of manipulate what the algorithm wants to do sometimes. And and you can make it fit you if you understand the bigger picture. Um, You know, you definitely have to, and for my daughter, you you definitely have to pre-bolus food. Um, If you miss on the bolus, you can't lay back and just say, oh, the algorithm will fix this because maybe six hours later, your blood sugar will come back down again. You have to be willing to go back at it and then recognize when to let the algorithm start taking basil away again. Like there's, there's little tricks to do. I think that's where people have to learn on their own how to do it. But I'm saying that away from food and away from an active bolus, there's nothing better than an algorithm. Like this stability at a low number is, is astonishing. The, the ability to stop a really frightening low. I don't know that my daughter's blood sugar has gone under 50 in two years. Like, you know, we've had, you know, we've had times where you're like, Oh, I, you know, this happened, but you, but you think back to prior to the algorithm, a 50 would have turned into a 30 in a a situation like that. Then you go back and look at the data and see that for the, the past 90 minutes, this thing has been trying to stop this low. And I, I, for people who have not lived long with diabetes, you might not know it. You know, for people who weren't born 20 years ago, you might not know it. But everybody needs to understand that, in my opinion, I mean, this is the way to go. But settings are still king, no matter what. Like, if your settings aren't right, you might as well be doing it blindfolded with a with an old rusty needle. Like, it, you have to have your settings right. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. And I would add a couple of things. One is, you know, Scott, I think you know, I completely agree with what you said, is that you need to understand how the algorithm works. 
uh, and not to the details of it over the software engineer kind of level, you know, understanding, but at least know what it's trying to do. The more you know, the more you understand how the software is, how the algorithm is thinking, the, the, the more effective you can make it by manipulating certain things. Not necessarily manipulating the code again, that's, you know, let's not go there, but it's more like, you know, thinking along the same lines that the algorithm is thinking. Yeah. Just like when you're dealing with a child, you kind of have just to think the same way that child is thinking. And you can have a really good relationship if you do that. Mm-hmm. And the same thing for it for a software algorithm. Uh, you can make it work much better if you know how it works and know which buttons you need to turn left to right to make things better. Yeah. But also understanding that your manipulations can make uh, can make an algorithm work much better, but it can also Inter- interfere with its function to be a hundred percent effective. Yes. You- so you really need to know what what are you doing to make it better, and what are you doing that can potentially make it worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and that effectiveness of you know not getting down to fifty for the last two years. If you don't know what you're doing, you might actually prevent it from being that effective. Yeah. No, it's. Um- a hundred percent true as, as easily as you can assist it, you can fight against it. And when, exactly. and when you start fighting against it, it's making decisions based off of things you've told it. And then you're changing the game, but it's still doing what you told it. Like you can't, like exactly. you can't just randomly throw in a couple of units of insulin and not somehow explain to the algorithm that this is because of, I, I mismatch my carbs. It's one of the things that that makes Loop, I think, really great. It's the little stuff, like being able to go back to a bolus from 90 minutes ago and say, you know what? I told that thing it was 45, but it turns out this is 52 carbs. Like that kind of stuff is huge. We have a... Um, it, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. We have a series of episodes in the podcast called Fox in the Loop House that I think you might really enjoy, um, where we talk about how to, you know, how to be Dr. Frankenstein a little bit with with the algorithm. I am, uh, I, I have to say, I'm super excited to see Omnipod five. Um, I know it's going to work differently than loop, but I do want to understand it. And I want to try to get to the point where I'm a, a good tactician with that as well. But can I, can I ask you a question before we move forward a little bit and talk about stuff? And if you don't, sure. if you don't know, you don't know, but I keep thinking you said something earlier in the like when you almost came on, like the FDA said they couldn't let this thing go on, meaning like an algorithm that just lives out in the, in the world that's giving people insulin. Do you think they're going to come after the DIY, the DIY loop at some point and try to try to scuttle it somehow? I I think that, you know, again, I think Mm -hmm. uh, that if they wanted to do that, they would have done that years ago. And the fact that they're working together with JDRF and Helmsley and Tidepool and the community to make it safe is like they don't want to go after anybody. They want this to actually work and be safe yeah. so that everyone can have it. That's good. To not hear. just not just the you know the elite software engineers and mathematicians who want to you know grab this and, and put things together. They want everyone to benefit from it. Otherwise we wouldn't be doing it either. Right. Now it's it's an interesting topic because I know a lot of people use it, you know, 
when you consider that it's just something that exists out in the ether. But, you know, when you hold that up against how many people are using insulin, really statistically, no one's using loop compared to how many people need insulin. So if you can get it into hands that way, I mean, I I know very little about type two diabetes, but it seems to me if you're insulin dependent type two, an algorithm would be genius for you. And yes, yes. But I have to say, Scott, um, it's it's not a bad thing that loop is not so widely used currently as it as it is in its current form because i i do think uh that it's not for everyone uh like you hinted at it's just like you really need to know what you're doing yeah you need to put the pieces together you need to do it right and then you need to have an understanding of how the algorithm works because uh, because you really you you do need to make sure that you're not interfering with it. You're not going to interfere with its performance because you can. Because by design, Loop was designed to allow for a lot of things that the patients can, the user can manipulate. Uh, and for a good reason, it was a clever design. But there's so many things you can manipulate that if you don't know what you're doing, you're actually going to make it not effective and even unsafe if you go far enough. So I think it's a it's a good thing, uh, and that's what I'm excited about. Is Tightwool is is trying to make sure that there are some some guardrails in there that are put together so that you don't end up manipulating stuff that you shouldn't be manipulating. No, I, I agree. I, I think that if you if you could take a, a macro view of this, the, the idea that this happened. And that there were this kind of small band of people who were so fervently, you know, developing the algorithm and at the same time supporting people. And they even put up barriers for people to get to it. I mean, it's not easy to figure out how to do this. And so it's sort of that it sounds crazy, but I do the same thing with the podcast. Like, I don't make it easy to be a guest on the podcast. And, (laughs) And because of that. If you're there, when I turn on the the machine, when you say you're going to be there, I know you really wanted to be on the podcast. And that, uh-huh. believe it or not, weeds out a lot of nudniks. So um, because there are people who flake and bail and, and you know, and, oh, I can't wait three months to be on or something like that. And I think the same thing about, about Loop. You have to make it a little hard. You can't just hand it out like candy because, like you said, you could, you could really not know what you're doing. Um, but th- these people then helped other people. They saw people, brought them into the fold, explained it to them, kind of created a little user base of it, and it expanded slowly. It's beautiful, really. Like, you'll look back on this in 20 years and think that... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's a revolution, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. It it really started. It did start a revolution. Uh, The the, the way we think about the whole field and about the approach of FDA approval and building software. Uh, and, And I think it also drove you know, pushed the, the world of diabetes into this interoperability concept even further uh, because it's, it's a product that stands on its own. It's just an algorithm. They, you know, the, uh, Loop doesn't, doesn't make a pump, doesn't make a CGM. It's just a software. Mm. So, you know, we don't have to build a pump. We don't have to build our own CGM. Uh, it's a software that should be able to be used by, by anybody who uses either pump or either CGM. Is Tidepool involved in development, or are they 
are they quite simply just taking this specific algorithm and trying to move it through the process? Or do you think you guys will at some point say, well, let's get some developers in here and we'll, we'll get an auto bolus like version of this and things like that. Uh, no, I think absolutely right. Uh, it's, it's not just, uh, let's take it, take what we have and get it approved. I think it's, you know, obviously once it's approved, you know, once that version one is approved, uh, we're already working on version two, mm. uh, and, and, and it's going to have different features and it's going to have, but we need to get the approval for the first one to go out there and actually be used. Uh, but, uh, no, Tidepool will eventually continue to be involved in the development, uh, and, um, uh, and optimization of, of loop as a software. That's really, I have to say that's terrific to hear because as much as I enjoyed loop, it didn't really, uh, it didn't really live up to its promise for us until the auto bolus branch came. And mm. that, that was a, that was a step up. And, and I'll tell you too, if for anybody listening, as much as I've learned about diabetes over the years and kind of put it into words that people can understand, I've learned a lot from the algorithm as well. Like seeing it take away basal or, or up basal or to see like a bad site. Like you can see a bad site because loop keeps bolusing. You're stuck at 120 and loop just keeps like the auto bolus branch just keeps bolusing and bolusing and bolusing. I'm like, Oh, this thing doesn't think it's going to break this 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 line right now like this 120 is sticking and you and then you learn to see bad sites because of that you learn you know how you could have attacked these things differently without the algorithm i've learned more about using insulin from loop in the last two years maybe than i have from using insulin in, in the 10 years <laughs> yeah, prior yeah you know? yeah yeah because it's, it's forcing you to think uh it's not just take an injection or take a bolus and go away uh, there, because there's not much else you can do, uh, you have to wait for the effect of the insulin. I think because of the intelligence of the software, it's now doing all kinds of things. And if you're really into it, you can start looking at the data. You're looking at that CGM tracing and seeing like, where is it moving from here? Why is it not moving? How come it moved too far? It was, this wasn't the intended uh, action. Uh, and, and it makes you think, and the more you think about it, the more you understand it, and the more you understand it, the better uh, operator you become. You, you, it almost becomes second nature at some yes. point. It takes, yes. it takes a while. And, and it takes a while. It takes a while. And, and, and there are people who can learn something to themselves, and they can really make it work so well if they're doing it themselves but they can't teach it to somebody else. Just like, I don't know how I'm doing this. I just know how to do it. But there are also people who are really good about learning something and also teaching it to someone else. Uh, so uh, I, and I think that's where the role of the clinicians come. Uh, they have to really understand the algorithms uh, and figure out how to teach people at different levels of, of ability to understand these technicalities. And I'm not really good at that. I, I don't. I still don't know how loop, you know, functions. Hundred percent. There's so many things that I don't know about. Um, and I go back to my friends and colleagues at Tightpool, and I say, "Can you tell me why did it do this? Why did it? Why didn't do this?" Uh, and then I learn one more thing about how it thinks and how it operates. I think that one of the biggest leaps 
that we're all going to have to make is exactly what you just said, which is finding a way for clinicians to simply explain this to someone. I, I, and I don't know if that's doable, honestly. Like, I think it almost is going to have to be one of those slow matriculation things where a generation of doctors lives with it like I did and stares at it and sees it work until you can just sort of talk about it in a, a colloquial way without it seeming overwhelming. Yeah, I think I, I agree with you. I don't think that it's possible for every clinician to be so immersed in the technology of diabetes that they're going to understand every single device and every single algorithm. I think there are, you know, a handful of us uh, who really this is what they do for a living, and this just just look at data and look at numbers, and they just love that and they want to understand it. Uh, but not everyone's going to have that. The, the ability and the luxury to spend that much time and do all of that. Um, so I think the clinicians have have two different roles uh, in this in this field. One is to know all of the algorithms and the hardwares and what they can and cannot do, and help the patient make the choice. And I, and I stress the word help. The patient still has to make the choice on their own. Uh, not as a challenge, but more like this, you know what works for you and what doesn't work for you. Uh, but also, but the clinician needs to be there for advice and for sort of direction. I think this one might work better for you. I know you like, you know, product B, but I think product A might be better for you because of so-and-so uh, based on experience, based on just knowledge from the past and, and seeing other patients similar to you. Uh, so that's one. And then the other is, um, is continuing the education. Start it with simple and then come back, look at the data and say, okay, how can we make this even better? I really think that closed loop systems should not be accepted to achieve time and range of 70 some percent only. I think they can do a lot more than 75 and 76 percent. Uh, if, we, if we learn how to operate them right, if we learn how to manipulate them right, and if we, obviously I'm talking like, if, if you bolus for everything you eat, of course, I mean, that's like the essential thing. If you don't do that, then forget it. It's just not gonna achieve 80, 90% in time and range. Uh, so besides doing that, uh, I think that uh, th there's a lot to be done gradually for teaching patients and families on how to use the systems to make it work effectively, more effectively. But I also go back to one thing you said uh, earlier, which I think I totally agree with and believe in, which is the settings. The settings are absolutely key to making any system work effectively. Uh, if you don't have your settings right, I mean, different systems work differently, obviously, uh, and some will take whatever settings you have and manipulate it and increase it and decrease it, and some will just ignore completely what your settings are and just think on their own. But I think for at least for the systems that are based on settings uh, that we put into the pump, uh, then I think that the settings need to be optimized as much as possible. Uh, if you don't have settings correct, then the system is just fighting too much and not being super effective. So um, I think that leads us pretty well into, into the next part of our conversation. Um, I, I'm very pleased to bring this podcast to people because I think it does the thing 
you know, part of what it does is it does the it does the job that manufacturers are not allowed to do because the FDA doesn't allow them to do it. And I, I say this here so that people understand it. A pump company is not allowed to tell you how to bolus for food. Like they're they're quite literally not allowed to. They can tell you that this is the pump. Uh, this is how the pump works. You know, functionally, this is what an extended bolus is. But I can't tell you when to use an extended bolus. Besides, you know, beyond the example of if you have pizza, um, they're not allowed to talk about how to use insulin. And um, that's a lot. They're about, not. They're not clinicians. Right. That's the clinician's job. Hundred percent. And so. A lot of people get frustrated because they get on a pump and they think, oh, the thing doesn't work, but they don't know how to use insulin. So at the basis of, of how I talk about insulin, whether you're using an algorithm or you're not, in my mind, in this order, it is get your basal correct, learn how to pre-bolt, understand the different impacts of different foods, and then stay flexible. To me, those are the four steps to stability and making decent boluses. How do you think about that? Just briefly before the ads start, let me let you know that that noise you were just hearing in the audio is a person down the street from where I record grinding up the trunk of a tree. And that does not last for very long during the episode, but I am sorry about it. It was far from here and sounded like it was happening right next to the microphone. Anyway... Givoke Hypopen has no visible needle and is the first pre-mixed auto-injector of glucagon for very low blood sugar in adults and kids with diabetes, ages 2 and above. Not only is Givoke Hypopen simple to administer, but it's simple to learn more about. All you have to do is go to givokeglucagon.com forward slash juice box. Givoke shouldn't be used in patients with insulinoma or pheochromocytoma. Visit givokeglucagon.com dot com slash risk. So far, there's been a lot of talk in this episode about algorithms, right? An algorithm is a program that will live uh, in the um, in the case of the Omnipod five. It'll live right in the circuit board of your pod. In the case of Tidepool, when it comes out, it'll live on your cell phone. If you're using a tandem pump, I think it lives right on the pump. I'm not 100 percent certain, but it, no matter which one of those you're using, unless it's Medtronic, the one thing that all three of them are going to have in common is that they're getting their data so they can make those decisions that they're going to make from the Dexcom CGM. So maybe now is the perfect time for you to find out about the Dexcom G6 continuous glucose monitor. The Dexcom is a device that you wear and it reports your blood sugar back to you in real time. Now for Dexcom users, that could mean on the receiver that they'll give you or right back to your Android or iPhone if that's what you want to do. Users of the Dexcom can have followers, up to 10 actually. People just like me or your mom or dad or brother or sister or school nurse, people you trust who can watch your blood sugar in real time on their phone if you like. Or you don't have to share it with anybody. It's up to you, but the option is there. Now, what is the Dexcom going to show you? It's going to show you the speed and direction of your blood sugar. It's also going to show you what your blood sugar is. You understand what I'm saying? The number, say your blood sugar is 124. The speed, is it moving at all up or down? And if so, how quickly? Two points per minute, three, four, more? It'll tell you that too with directional arrows. 
So now the arrow is going to point in a direction, if your blood sugar is dropping, let's say, and tell you how fast it's dropping. So is my 124 dropping at four points per minute, two, one, et cetera, et cetera. This information is super valuable, extremely, extremely helpful. And at the core of not only how I make decisions about my daughter, but it's also the way that these algorithms are going to know what to do with your insulin. So just like seeing Arden's blood sugar tells me, I think we need a temp basal increase here, or we should bolus a little bit, or maybe take away some insulin, whatever it tells us, whatever algorithm you choose is going to also get that information. Please trust me. If you can afford this stuff, if you have insurance coverage, look into it. Dexcom.com forward slash juice box. The future's here already. Go find it. Links to the GVOC HypoPen, Dexcom, and all the sponsors are available at juiceboxpodcast.com or they're right there in the show notes of your podcast player. I love your elements, the four elements, uh, and I think you're absolutely right. First, I would start with the basal. Uh, you know, besides understanding how insulin works and how long it takes for it to actually start working and how long does it take to be to peak its action and how long does it last before it's finally gone and has no effect anymore, uh, and different insulins have different dynamics. And Understanding how food affects the blood sugar and how the dynamics of digestion and absorption in different foods are slower and, 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 and faster than others. Uh, and, and, and they're different in each person. And they're different in the same person. If you eat something in the morning versus you eat it in the evening, the, the dynamics of absorption are completely different. So learning all of that, all, all of those individual parameters about that particular patient then when we're talking about the algorithms and the software and the hardware, I think, you know, setting the basal correctly is number one. And then figuring out what the right ratios are, the insulin to carb ratio and the correction ratio and the insulin duration time and factoring all of that into the thought process, not just the mechanics, but also the thought process. And that's really hard. You know, it's, it's hard to ask everyone to do this every single time they eat something. Uh, so we have to simplify it in the beginning and then get more sophisticated as time goes by. And as like you said, it's, it, it then becomes second nature. It's hard to do it in the beginning. So I think it's upon us, actually the clinicians, to make it simple, to make it intuitive, and to start with smaller baby steps and then keep going. And in order to do that, you can't just come to the clinic every three months and do this lifetime of education about certain things. That the, the, the interactions between the patients, the clinicians, and the, and the patients needs to be continuous all the time. Uh, you grab a teaching moment and you say, okay, let's talk about this. Let's learn one thing today. And that cannot be, again, like every three months when you come to the clinic. It has to be a channel of communication that's open. And I think this, is, this, is, this was one thing that Tightpool really insisted on from the beginning, uh, from the very early days. It's just like, 
We have to make the data visible in an intuitive and simple way and an actionable way so that we can collect the data and we can visualize it uh, very simply that everyone can understand it. Because it's key. You can't, you can, you can come up with all kinds of ideas and, and interventions and trials and say, well, let's do this and see how it works. If you don't collect the CGM data and go back and look at it, you have no idea how your experiment worked or didn't work uh, or what worked and what didn't work. I've been considering for the future of the podcast. Um, I have a, a friend of mine comes on the show sometimes. Her name is Jenny. Uh, she's had type 1 diabetes for over 30 years. Uh, she works at Integrated Diabetes. So she is she spends her day talking people virtually through their blood sugars. And she's just really terrific. And one of my ideas for the future is to do a series for clinicians about how to talk to people about their stuff. And that's cool. Yeah. I think that one of the ideas I've had in the past that I don't know why hospitals don't do instead of seeing people 15 and 20 minutes at a time, what can't you do it in a large group setting where you can put together a few hours? So, you know, see, see 20, 30, 40 people at a time and give their, give them larger instruction, which will, by bringing them all together, gives you more time to talk to them. Like, I think that's, yeah. I mean, certain things can be done in a group and certain things can only be done at, in, in, with one-on-one -on -one person. Sure. Uh, so I agree with you that we can be a lot more efficient if we, if we know what to teach as a group. Uh, and, uh, and, and the idea of doing classes, but now with the technology that everything can be done remotely via Zoom and, and other platforms... Uh, then I think I think we need to take advantage of that. Yeah. Uh, and and we're not actually doing that very well. Would it would it surprise you to know that literally every day I get between six and fifteen messages from people who are experiencing stability and A one Cs in the fives or sixes who just previously three, four, five months earlier were on a roller coaster and had no idea what they're doing just from listening to a podcast. <laughs> uh, yes, that would that would surprise me, but uh, pleasantly surprised to hear that that within a few months you can actually get that kind of comfort and stability and 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 feel good about it. It can be, as you well know, I don't have to tell you this, but it can be extremely frustrating mm. uh, when you're trying to do something and it just doesn't work. And I really think that uh, you know, for a lot of it, my my own personal experience that I have seen a lot of people get really frustrated simply because they've tried everything. And the reason that their experiments are not working is because their settings are not correct to yeah. begin with. Yeah. If you don't have your insulin to carb ratio, if you don't have your ISF, if you don't have your basal rate settings correctly, you can go crazy doing all kinds of things, and it just doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah, you can work as hard as you want to dig a hole, but if you're using a screwdriver, it's not going to go well. And right. this is this is what happens over and over. So how do you talk to people about setting their basal insulin? Because the way I talk about it is so incredibly simplified that I, I, I wonder how you would talk about it. Um. Basal rate is one of my favorite topics to talk about uh, because um, I, I believe that the basal rate uh, is the key to achieving good results. Uh, and, and it's the most important parameter to look at because if you don't get anything else right, you can get the nighttime when there's no food and no activity. 
which is the which is the product of nothing else but basal rate. Uh, there's nothing else going on at night. And if you can figure that out correctly, you get yourself eight to 10 hours of straight line of CGM uh, that is going from left to right and maybe just uh, maybe changing a little bit or fluctuating, but it's still staying within that target range of 70 to 180 or even 70 to 140. Uh, so it's worth starting there. Uh, and if you get that right, if you get the basal rate right at night, then I think it actually gets you in a very good spot during the day. Uh, you don't have to do basal testing during the day. You don't have to go for a whole day without carbs to figure out what your basal rate is. I truly believe that if you get the basal rate correct at night, it gives you a pretty darn good idea what the basal rate should be during the day. That's number one. And number two is figuring out the basal rate pattern. There is a pattern of basal, of basal insulin requirement throughout the day, but particularly at night. And that pattern is not just a flat, one single basal rate all night long. What the patient, what the, at least the kids that I've dealt with all my career is like when the child with type 1 diabetes requires, you know, 0.4 units of insulin, it doesn't it's not going to work if you do 0.4 units of insulin the whole night. Uh, there's definitely a variability, a tremendous variability, and it could be 0.4 in one hour, and it could be 0.6 or 7 in one hour, and then come back two hours later, and it has dropped down to 0.2 or 0.3 units an hour. Yeah. And knowing that pattern uh, and, and following that pattern can really put you in a good spot, and then you can achieve a very good uh, flat line of CGM during the night uh, and it can be extremely satisfying. Not only that you had a very good night, but also that when you get up in the morning, you're starting in a good spot to begin with. If you get up in the morning with a blood sugar of 300, it's really hard to get that, that fixed uh, for, the, for the rest of the day. If you start out with a blood sugar of around 100, then I think it's going to be a much easier job to actually get it and stay in, in, in range for the rest of the day. So basal rate is the key. Basal rate is the first thing I look at, and nighttime basal rate is, the, is, is where we start. And once we get that right, we know the basal rate for the day, and now we start working on the insulin-to-carb ratio and the ISA. Sully, you have no way of knowing this because you don't listen to the podcast, but when other people listen to this, they're going to be able to feel me smiling while you were speaking because <laughs> you would love this podcast. That's the first thing I can tell you. And you and I are like, we are absolutely kindred spirits. You you really did just speak words that I have spoken almost in the exact same order. You used a couple of different ones, but you said exactly the same thing that I've been telling people for years. I'm so I'm glad to hear that. Oh, I'm so thrilled you, you you said what you did because I, I agree. I, I mean everything. Like I don't think you need to basal test. Like when I tell people when they ask like, well, how do you figure out what your basal is? I tell them I think of it as like an old stereo. I turn it up until my mom yells, and then I turn it back down just a little bit, and that's good. And you al <laughs> and, and you always do it overnight, right? Like because overnight all the a lot of the impacts are gone unless they're children and they're growing, you know, but overnight you get overnight, right. And then the daytime is going to be pretty close to the overnight. Some people need a little more overnight, a little less, but for the most part, if you can figure out overnight, 
you can figure out during the day. And then that just leads into the rest of it. Then you can check on your meal insulin. Is my meal insulin right? Am I pre-bolusing enough? Um, it, and, and then from there, it's just understanding the different impacts of foods and not getting caught up in saying, well, this is 10 carbs and my ratio is one to 10. I don't know why this went up. Like what I tell people is I don't care why it goes up. If, if meatloaf and green beans and mashed potatoes, you know, it comes out to 55 carbs, but you always end up correcting later with two more units. Well then damn it, move the two units into the bullet <laughs> because that's, exactly. that's what that meal needs. Like just be done. Yeah. With it. Stop fighting with right, common right, sense. Right. Yeah. Right. It's, yeah. it's not, it's not, let's blame the manufacturer who printed the information incorrectly on the box and says, if it says 18 grams, but clearly in your experience, it's 24, just count it as 24 next time. doesn't matter what the box says. Yeah. No, this has been terrific because you just made me feel like a genius. I really am thrilled. <laughs> well, you, well, you are. <laughs> no, you didn't need to say that, but thank you. You, you figured it out. It just was, so for, you know, for your edification, like I've just been a stay-at-home dad for decades. My daughter was diagnosed when she was two. I was just like everybody else. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't understand how the insulin worked. I felt like I was killing her constantly. And honestly, it was before CGMs. I probably was. She yeah, had had yeah. she had had a couple of seizures from low blood sugars, and I just one day I was like I got to figure this out or she's not going to be okay. And um, back then I had a blog and I wrote on it a lot, and writing on the blog helped me figure out things. And then one day I just said to my wife, I'm like I have a system. I was like, there's a system here and it works. And I don't think it would just work for Arden. I think it would work for everybody. And I just realized that like one of the more damaging things that we say to people with diabetes is like, oh, that's diabetes. You can't do anything about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I right? hate that. Yeah. Or I'm brittle. You know, you're you're brittle because your settings are probably all wrong. Like, 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 like your jump. I understand your blood sugar flies all over the place. But now I see people all the time, you know, when they come into the podcast who look, quote unquote, brittle from 20 years ago, but their basal's just wrong or they... Let me ask you this. How often do you find that people mistakenly treat lows by taking away basil instead of increasing basil so that they can make better meal boluses? Does that? Oh, it, it, it happens. It, it used to happen more often than it does now. Uh, and it all comes back to misunderstanding the dynamics of insulin. Uh, cutting off your basil is not going to treat your low. You're going to be low for the next hour or so. You need to do something else. You can prevent the low by cutting out basil mm -hmm. or by stopping the basil altogether uh, an hour before or an hour and a half before. Uh, but you can't treat a low by doing that. Yeah. Let me, let me dig deeper and tell you what I've seen from talking to people. So just... Let's be accepting of an idea that there's a person in front of you who needs a unit of insulin per hour as basal, but for some reason they're using 0.7 and then they end up having to make super aggressive boluses at meals. They don't pre-bolus usually. They fly up, then they crash down and then they go back to their doctor and say, look what's happening. And the doctor says, oh, you're having a lot of lows. We should take away your basal insulin. Now their 0.7 ends up 0.5. And all that does is make them be even more aggressive at meals next time, creating more lows. Do you see that? Have you ever seen that? Oh, um, more often than I would like to. Okay. Uh, and I think that even um, a lot of 
people also on their own start adjusting their basal incorrectly. Uh, I, I, I encourage people to look at their data and make small changes. Uh, but the first thing that they always think about is it's the basal rate that needs to be changed. And sometimes it's it, because I think it's really hard to figure out whether the insulin to carb ratio is working or not working. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's harder to look at it. I don't think it's really hard. I think it's just harder to assess it uh, versus it's the basal that's too much or it's the basal that's too little and this increase that. And all of a sudden there's this imbalance between the basal and the boluses And I think that's also an important thing is to understand for each age group, what should the basal percent be compared to the total daily dose of insulin? And that can be an extremely helpful guidance uh, towards where should I be looking first? There's a big discrepancy. I know that, for example, a 14-year-old with type 1 diabetes should have about 40 to 45% basal rate. And all of a sudden, I see someone who is 14-year-old and only getting uh, uh, getting like 65% in basal, well, clear and 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 35% in boluses, and the carb ratio is only you know one unit for 20 grams. Then clearly, there's an imbalance there, and I can direct, I can straight go to that uh, basal rate and say that's too high, 65% basal for a 14-year-old or for anyone of any age. That's just too much. I think we need to cut back your basal and let's either wait and see what happens to your blood sugars or we can blindly uh, increase your insulin to carb ratio yeah. because it's clearly too low and I think we need to re- re- rebalance things a little bit. Sometimes so it's, it's a very helpful first look to say, where are we in the ballpark of basal rate? Is it the right percent? Uh, is this something that we need to just generally increase or decrease? Or is it more like it's in the right ballpark? I just need to fine-tune it a little bit. Mm. I, I sometimes believe that that's a holdover from old MDI clinicians who just pushed up basal to, yes, to, yes, to, to yes. mask other problems. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, I agree. Oh, what was I just going to say to you? Basal? Oh, uh, I have this theory. This is anecdotal completely, but I do end up talking to a lot of people. I think a good place to start with children who are – Prepubescent, like you know, nobody nobody's into you know any of their any of their real growth yet. Point, no. point one per hour per ten pounds. That's where I start in my head. It's not always for, ba- for for basal for basal. So if you're fifty pounds, you're around point five. If you're forty pounds, you're around point four. It's a starting point. It's not always one hundred percent correct. But yeah. but when you're but I find myself frequently put in a position where I'm talking to a person privately who I don't really know. And I don't know how to like, I mean, they want to, they're, they're lost. They're, I mean, try to imagine silly. You've, you're, you're a parent of a child or you're a grown up with diabetes and you're reaching out to a person on the internet for help. Like imagine how lost you are in that moment, because that's not a good idea. And so then I get a message from somebody and I say, well, look, let's just get your basal straight first. Then I think everything else will start making sense. Well, where do I start? And then you look and they have 7,000 basal rates all th- because they've been chasing ghosts for weeks, you know, trying to, yeah. you know, yeah. move things around. And I'm like, look, let's just start here. And I usually say, you know, if it's a 50 pound kid and I see, for instance, they're at 0.25, they're at 0.35, but they're always in 200s. I'm always like, well, I would maybe move that to 0.4, let it sit for a number of hours, see what happens, 
and then we can move it from there. That's just a, a jumping in point for me. But. I, I never thought of it that way, uh, but it, 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 it may be perfectly reasonable to that. I'll have to do the math. Uh, and if I were to approach it from the way I think about it, I would say, you know, a, a prepubescent child, let's say an eight-year-old, for example, or a seven-year-old, uh, would require a total daily insulin of somewhere around 0.5 units per hour for everything, total mm -hmm. daily needs. So a seven-year-old, let's say if it's a... Uh, so 12. Uh, I'm sorry, what did I say? Point, point 0.5 unit per kilo per day. Sorry, uh, I, I misspoke. 0.5 unit per kilo per day. So how many kilogram is that child? Let's just say if it's a 20 kilo, that means the total daily insulin should be about 10 units. 10 units for that child who's a seven or eight-year-old. Uh, about... 40% of that or less, 35 to 40% of that should be basal rate. So that's about three and a half to four units a day of basal rate. Uh, does this jive with your calculation? Yeah, you don't have to do the math. No, no, it's pretty close. It's, and like I said, it's not a perfect thing. It's not like you just say to somebody, what's your it's, kid weigh? This is it. It's a starting point. It's an exactly, idea. You know? Exactly. And that's what they lack. That's what I've learned when you're speaking to people is what they lack is they're like, I don't know, up, down, left, right. I've got seven basal programs. My doctor keeps, you know, every time I say, oh, look, he's, you know, no one says my kid's blood sugar's high at 11 o'clock every night. No doctor says, do you eat a high fat meal in the evenings? Like no one ever says that. They say, oh, we'll turn your basal up an hour before it goes up usually. Right, right, you, you right. Know. And the other thing I see a lot is, you know, it's, you know, uh, if you're, you get up in the morning, your blood sugar is 200. Uh, and then immediately jump to a stock, well, your basal rate is not enough. We need to increase your basal at night. Uh, and I think that that happens a lot. And sometimes it's correct, but oftentimes it's not. Because what was your blood sugar at bedtime? And what was it at 2 in the morning? If you went to bed at 200, at 2 in the morning it was 200. And when you woke up in the morning at 200, that means your basal rate is actually pretty darn good. It kept your blood sugar exactly where it was in right, the beginning. Right. And for the whole night, you're at 200. It's a flat line, 200. That means your basal rate is perfect. You don't need to increase your basal. What you need to do is to increase your insulin to carb ratio for mm -hmm, dinner mm -hmm. uh, or increase your basal before midnight. Uh, so that way, you actually hit the night, hit the bed and hit the night with a good blood sugar and it stays that way and you wake up at 100. Yes, yes, yes. That's um, so the way I think about insulin. The way it's, when I tell people, I say, "Look, insulin you use now is for later, but more importantly, <laughs> more importantly, the way to think of it, if you're if you're in the middle of managing in the moment, you have to think of it this way: insulin from before is for now. That's how right, you, it, right, it, right, it's, right, it's right. the same thing, but it's a different way of considering it. What's happening to me now is from before." Like right. that, that helps you in the moment, make a decision, not, you know, if you say, well, what I'm doing now is for later, people chase, they just keep chasing the insulin. It's, uh, it's just, it's like a time travel movie and they're in the wrong timeline. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like they're fighting the dragon. The dragons, the dragon was here three hours ago. You don't fight it now, you know, f f get, and I always tell people get low, get steady, start over. Like don't, because they'll chase for days and weeks. And and it yeah. and, and that's the thing that gets 
I think that's where the psychological impact comes in, that feeling of I'm working so hard and nothing's going right. Like, And, and I, I want to trace back to something you said earlier, and I do completely understand that when people are newly diagnosed, that you want to sp- spoon feed them a little bit and bring them along slowly. But I think the one sentence that never gets spoken to people that they need is, this is what we're doing now, but this is going to keep changing because exactly. they get stuck, especially when a honeymoon ends. I don't understand. I don't understand what's happening. Well, there's not enough insulin here. It has to be. This has always worked. Has And then I think, has no one told you that this was going to increase? Or how how is it you didn't think that you gained 10 pounds and now you need more insulin? Or, you yeah. know, what I mean? like little yeah. things that just, you get, you get so, you get so micro and you're so close to it. You just kind of can't see the forest for the trees after a while. And if someone doesn't tell you that you have to step back every once in a while, you'll never think to do it. It's, uh, yeah, no, I agree, Scott. Yeah. I think this is, you know, in, in pediatrics training, this is drilled in our head, which is the anticipatory guidance, uh, which is to tell the parents what to expect next year, what to expect six months from now, uh, so that they're not all of a sudden, oh, my God, what's happening to my child? Uh, so it's, it's, it's that anticipatory guidance and then telling them what's going to happen from now. And don't be surprised. And I've always told people, and, and, and I can't believe that I get the same response every time. Just like when they hit puberty, they're going to be on 1.2 units an hour. They're going to be on a carb ratio of one to five grams of carbohydrates. Don't be surprised when that happens. And all of a sudden, they just, their eyes wide open, just like, what? They're going to require that much insulin. It's going to kill them. Just like, no, that's what they need. Uh, and we just have to keep increasing it with time. And then the other thing is, no matter what we do, we get the settings right. We get we work really hard at that basal rate to be just perfect for the whole night. And guess what? It works great for about two weeks. <laughs> and then two weeks later, you just have to start over again. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think something you just said really, really sticks with me because I have a number of episodes on how much is enough. And I, I preach to people that the amount of insulin you need is the right amount of insulin. <laughs> Do not I love that. Because they, they ascribe a number to it or a percentage jump freaks them out. That's another thing that happens to people. I, it, yeah. it, it, they love to say it doubled. That can't be right. Well, it, it appears to be right. And, and, but people get stuck. And when that drags into adulthood, uh, Sully, I've, I've interviewed a lot of adults um, with type 1 diabetes. They start getting psychological impairments that are difficult to shake. And one of them, yeah, one of yeah. them is the shame about how much insulin they use. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. So I, I've done my best to um, to make sure people understand, you know, that you just need what you need. Listen, my daughter's 17. She weighs maybe 130 pounds. She is as fit and healthy as, you know, a person could be. And her her ratios, uh, her, her carb ratio is like one to four and a half. Wow. And that's just yeah. how we have our, that's what works for her. Now, could I dump a bunch of basil on her and just make sure she eats, you know, three times a day and has a snack before she goes to bed? I could, but my daughter also got up this morning, went to high school, has not eaten yet. It's one thirty here. I just got a text from her. When are you done? I want to have lunch. Okay. So, so that's okay. <laughs> and I'm going back on her CGM. I'm going to go back 12 hours, turn my phone landscape and tell you that at 1.45 in the morning, she was 118, down to 109. I'm now at 3 o'clock. She's 94. 
88, 93, 85, 91. It's six o'clock. She's at school. She's 92. That's it. She's been between 90 and 85 for the last 12 hours. She has not Mm -hmm. eaten a morsel in that time. Yeah. And that's a good basal rate. And that's well, but that's that's both the basal rate the as well as loop and the algorithm, yep. right? So, so, but I think it's, I, I think you also described something which is very key. It's not looking at what her blood sugar is right now; it's also what it had been over the last hour or two, because it's a different. It's it's it. It's what I tell people is with CGM. It, it's not a, a blood sugar of 92 anymore. There are five different 92s. There's 92 and two arrows up. There's 92 and one arrow up. And there's 92 and straight to the right mm-hmm. and, and two down. Uh, so there are five different 92s. And each one of them, you think about it very differently. Yeah. Uh, and your, your decision making is going to be different if you have a 92 up versus down. Yeah. No, it's just great. Listen, um, you're allowed to come back on the podcast whenever you want. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, if it every if, if you ever like find yourself sitting around the house and you haven't worked in a while and you're like, people need to know about this, you send me an email, get you right on here because All right. because I really um, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your input and your knowledge, especially over all this time, and and, and for the people listening too, I have to imagine it brings them some sort of solace to have you come on with, you know, you got quite a, quite a long list of bona fides in front of you. And you really did just say what I say on this podcast for a while. And I, I hope that helps people feel comfortable because I think that, uh, you have to dispense with your fear of insulin first. Um, you know, and there are about a thousand other things to understand. And to your point, you can't get them in a doctor's visit. You know, you can't bring people together, I think this delivery system for information is great for people because it's at their pace yes. and on yes. their time. And um, I honestly think if you if you were diagnosed today, and I've seen it a million times already, and you just listen to this podcast, I think you have an A one C in the sixes, easy. <laughs> and 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 I I swear I don't want to do it on here because it'll seem self serving, but I could show you just endless endless messages about the same thing. People who are diagnosed and find the podcast in the hospital on day one and will report to me six months later that they don't even understand what, like when they hear people having all this trouble, they're like, I don't, I don't even understand how they could have this trouble. And I was like, well, yeah, but you, you started listening on day one. Yeah. It's, it's not easy. It takes, it takes knowledge, uh, managing type one diabetes uh, it takes a lot of knowledge, mm. uh, and um, and it's acquired gradually and slowly over time because it's biochemistry, it's biology, it's physiology, it's food science, it's activity and, uh, and exercise, and all all physiology, and all of those things, and then and then pharmacology when it comes to insulin, and then now we're throwing, you know, software uh, <laughs> stuff over, you know, on top of things. So it takes a lot and it can be overwhelming if you think of it that way, but just take it one little step at a time and look at the data. Yeah. You have the data, you have tons of data. Everyone has CGM data. Everyone has pump data and boluses and insulin. Mm-hmm. Uh, just download those devices. Take half an hour to just take a look at it and see what makes sense. And if something makes sense, and if it's something that doesn't make sense, 
ask your child. They actually can have significant input and insights into it as well. Yeah, I just realized just looking at my at my daughter's data and talking to you, I saw by what the algorithm was doing that her basil could have been a little stronger today because it was taking it away and then bolusing and taking it away and bolusing for those 12 hours. So if the basil was a, maybe a tiny bit higher, it might have been able to get away with takeaway and not bolus. But in the end, it's working exactly the way I want it to. So Right, right, right. Yeah. I, I, I can't thank you enough. I, I, I invite you, if you're interested, um, beyond the hundreds of conversations that are in here with people with type 1 diabetes of all ages, I have a series called um, Defining Diabetes that goes through all the tools and in a short way explains what they are. There's a pro tip series that walks you through how to manage yourself. Uh, we just launched a variable series. You know, I think the last episode of the variable series was video games because, you know, the adrenaline from playing video games for some kids makes your blood sugar go up. I have a great yeah. after dark series with people who have all different kinds of um, like real world life problems of so people who are bipolar, um, you know, have serious complications. They're, you know, all this stuff. People with type one talk about it. I, I, I swear to you, you listen to this podcast, you're going to think I ripped you off. <laughs> so uh i can't thank you enough for doing this i mean this is really wonderful of you to, to take oh i very much enjoyed this scott thank you for having me yeah and i'm going to thank the person who uh sent me your name even though i don't remember who that was so if you're listening you did this and, and thank you very much a huge thank you to one of today's sponsors gvoke glucagon Find out more about Gvoke Hypopen at gvokeglucagon.com forward slash juice box. You spell that G V O K E G L U C A G O N dot com forward slash juice box. I'd also like to thank Dr. Adi for coming on the show. And I mean it, sir. If you're listening, come back whenever you like. This is fantastic. Lastly, Thank you, Dexcom, for being a generous sponsor of the Juicebox podcast. If you want to learn more about the Dexcom G6 Continuous Glucose Monitor, that's at Dexcom.com forward slash Juicebox. If you enjoy the Juicebox podcast, please share it by telling a friend. That really is the best way to help the show to grow, sustain, and to continue on. Just tell someone. Listen to the Juicebox podcast. Show them how to open up a podcast app if you have to. Show them where the subscribe button is. That kind of stuff is a huge help. Hey, and if you uh, like the show, you might really love the Juicebox Podcast Facebook page. It's a private group with almost 15,000 people in it now, all talking about stuff like we talked about today. Juicebox Podcast, Type 1 Diabetes on Facebook. It's the least Facebook place on Facebook. I think you know what I mean by that. And if you're still listening, I'm going to assume you're a real big fan of the show and ask you, have you gone to t1dexchange.org forward slash juicebox yet and filled out the survey? If you haven't, and you're a U.S. resident who lives with type 1 or a U.S. resident who is the caregiver of someone with type 1, please do that right now. It'll literally take you less than 10 minutes. It'll be a huge help for people living with type 1 diabetes, and you'll be supporting the podcast at the same time. t1dexchange.org forward slash juicebox. That's it for me. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back very soon with another episode of the Juicebox Podcast.